0: I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago I got your message It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in your transmissions, I'm moaning
2: this is the Starship Sofa, everybody welcome, hello and welcome to show 671, I am your host Tony C Smith, hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy, yes we're still into deep space here, they going, keep on going here, 671, tell you what's coming today, show we have the main fiction Half Past the Dragon by Grant Carrington. Then it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back, genre history. That's all coming in this show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So, just before the main fiction, I thought this would be quite... This is honestly going back oodles and it's really nice to kind of do it, but... I was watching a, a conference, you know, I kind of, I'm into cryptocurrency and everything like that. Well, the cryptocurrency that I like is the one called Cardano. And one of the speakers was, you know, talking about you know, artificial intelligence. And, you know, and he says one of his favorite books and one of his favorite writers was Verno Vinci and Rainbow's End. And I went, you know what? And I remember when me and Kieran did that. And I kind not remember what year it was, but it was it was a few year ago where we read every like Hugo nominated book, and I think there was Michael Michael Flynn was in there, the Peter Watts novel what was Blind Side, Elfenheim was Michael Flynn, and Rainbow's End, and there was must have been another one, and I can't remember even who won and. I think at the time, I kind of liked Michael Flynn's Elfenheim, but I thought, you know what, I'm going to just go back to, you know, Fairmont High and just meet all those people again. I'm listening to the audio, and the audio narration, you know, is cracking. It's absolutely brilliant. So I'm right in the middle of, you know, Rainbow's End, and it's just lovely to step back into that kind of world, you know what I mean? Like a future world that was probably so close to achieving at the moment, you know what I mean? It's just... Everything is going into the kind of wearable, you know, the eyes and the wearable. And it's the way it's just narrated, like silent voice, you know, like you can just message each other just by, you know, the wearable or the implants you've got in. And it's just, you know, a fascinating scenario that we're very close to achieving, (laughs) So anyway, let us know, have you, have you read Rainbow's End? That would be Verno Vingy, that would be fantastic, let us know. So, we'll jump into the main fiction. Like I say, it is Half Past the Dragon by Grant Carrington. The story was first published in Fantastic Magazine in 2021, in January 2021. Grant Carrington is the author of three science fiction books from Brief Candle Press of Beaverton. Two CDs of original songs available from Amazon and other internet sites. Five plays given full productions and 40 to 50 stories, mostly science fiction. One was a Nebula finalist in 1976 and one won the short story award at the Sand Hill Writers Conference in 1977. He attended the Clarendon 1968 to 69. He was the Associate Editor of Amazing Fantastic from 1972 to 1974, Contributing Editor to Eternity 1977 to 1979. We do not speak of his poetry in polite company. He was a computer programmer for the Goddard Space Flight Centre, the US Navy University of Florida Savannah River Ecological Lab. He has a BA and an MA in Mathematics. Now this story is narrated by Summer Brooks. As you know, Summer Brooks is a story addict who watches too much television and she enjoys putting her encyclopedia science fiction geek knowledge to the test in discussions about science fiction, horror and comics. She's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005 and as co-host, producer host and EIC and as the Babylon podcast co-host host from 2006 to 2012. Summer is also an avid reader, writer of science fiction, fantasy and thrillers with a handful of published credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy action adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also does narrations for Tales to Terrify, Escape Pod, amongst others, and has audiobooks in her sights. So, the Starship Suva is very proud to present...
3: Half Past the Dragon by Grant Carrington Narrated by Summer Brooks Lie down, my love, and I'll tell you a story. Of course it's a true story. No, most true stories don't have happy endings. The true ending of most true stories is death. Now be quiet, and I'll have a surprise for you when the story is over. It takes place in deepest interstellar deep space, where gravity is only a whisper. Where lithium ions taste like cotton candy, it is only here, far from planetary masses, that space dragons will be found. For the dragons are fragile creatures, wisps of hydrogen and helium, traces of argon and nitrogen. You could pass your hand through one and never feel anything but vacuum. Should a dragon approach a planet, it would be torn to shreds, a painful death, and perhaps a common one for space dragons, for they are curious beasts. Perhaps that's why there are so few of them. I was the good ship Kimono in those days, plying the trade between Babe Ruth and El Nair. In those days, I tasted the stellar winds. Some of us saw them. Some heard them, some felt them. Our brains, all that was left of what we were born with, encased in cryogenic cabinets deep in the bowels of our ships, interpreted the data in different and individualistic ways. I greedily gulped the gravy and potatoes of hydrogen, the rare roast beef of helium, garnished with a sprig of ferric ion. I sipped the fine chablis of oxygen And for dessert, I feasted on the baked Alaska of nitrogen. Sometimes I could tell where an argon atom had been born simply by the fragrance of its bouquet. Oh, I had heard tales of space dragons, yes, and I thought of them as you do now, mere tales by space drunk ships. I had never seen one, felt one, smelled one, tasted one, heard one. They are different. Sam Hall told me it was this same Sam Hall who was going to write a book, The Synesthetics of Space. We all see and experience dragons the same way. No matter how you experience anything else in space, you will see a dragon, smell the brimstone on its breath, feel the ghostly heat of its flame, and hear its roar. And what does roasted dragon taste like, I asked trying to be sarcastic in my youthful ignorance. Like rotten flesh, he answered. How did we talk without mouths? Without sweet mouths like yours, my dear. Yes, made for kissing and caressing. Why, we had radios, of course. Sleep? Of course we slept. Humans need sleep, whether they are just brain or have all their protoplasmic complement. The computer was perfectly capable of taking care of all the routine chores, taking off, landing, and so on. In fact, I slept 80% of the time. We were needed for those unforeseen instances. We were always awake at liftoff, orbital insertion, and landing, nominally in control, but in reality with our mental fingers over imaginary buttons. I only remember one time when I had to do something, and that has nothing to do with tonight's tale. Okay, I'll tell you tomorrow night. Move over a little, will you? There, that's much better. No, our emergencies always took place in empty interstellar space. Yes, like space dragons, and wandering planets and renegade alien pirates. Ah yes, those were exciting days, back before the galaxy was completely tamed. Of course, I didn't think so then. Many were the times I shit in my pants. That was embarrassing. And dangerous. No, but my anal sphincter control was attached to the exhaust tubes. I lost a lot of fuel that way. Fortunately, never enough to keep me from getting to a friendly planet, but it was a close a couple of times, though. Yes, I'll tell you about them some other night. Of course it was embarrassing. Can you imagine what it's like to try to explain to a planet master why you're short on fuel? Now quit asking questions and let me tell you about the dragon. Yes, that does feel good. It happened on one of my first trips as the kimono. The kimono was a lovely ship. I've worn many ships in my day, but putting the kimono on was like slipping on a familiar old glove. Ah, kimono. My house, my home, my castle, my very being for so many years. I'd heard about dragons, yes, but... I thought they were just so much space gas, if you know what I mean. Space yak and space flag. Well, in a way I was right, of course. They are space gas, but not in the way I'd meant it. There I was, somewhere between the Horsehead Nebula and El Nair, half asleep as it were. In that eternal haze land between sleep and wakefulness that you spend so much time in when you're in space, when there's nothing for you to do but sleep. What? Oh, yes, there's other things to do. You can play volleyball, handball, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, chess, checkers, squash, ping pong, or lacrosse. You can read any book you desire, as long as you've had the foresight to have entered it into the computer's memory banks, See any dramatic presentation you want, hear any recording you wish. You can make love to the galaxy's most beautiful women, many of them long dead. You can write, compose, paint. What's that? My favorite was Rosemary Clooney. Never mind, she was before your time. Or mine, for that matter. You can write, compose, paint, make sculptures or you can just wander by an unpolluted stream in a virgin forest. You can experience anything you've had the foresight to load into the computer. It's all in the mind, of course. But then, what isn't? No, I didn't mean to get solipsistic with you. Sorry. Anyway, I was drifting along, a light show playing hazily in my mind to the faint caesars of space, while the kimono sped on its way to El Nair. Far from the continuous radio noise near inhabited planets, one could hear faint communications from long-dead races, from long-dead pilots of one's own race. I do have lights in sight on the ground. Is Professor Weisberg still at the Academy? This program was brought to you by Cheerios. The lights show up very well, and thank everybody for turning them on. This is Sissy Face Control... In fact, some pilots look for brambles of static, hidden pockets where no man-made radiation can reach. I've never been a static addict myself, but I've felt the temptation of natural radiation, unpolluted by civilized and organized wavelengths. The only signal of any strength was that of the laser beacon from Babe Ruth to El Nair, for and after the Kimono, But even that was so attenuated, it could not overwhelm the ancient murmurings of space. The dragon. Yes, the dragon. Well, I was drifting along when this dragon appeared. Just like that. No warning. Just zonk. There it was. I've talked to other pilots since then, and they say that's the way it always happens. The dragons just pop out of nowhere. Some people think they come out of another dimension some kind of hyperspace, and that there's really lots of them, but they rarely appear in our space. It looked just as Sam Hall said it would. A thin, sinuous, bright green dragon with glowing red coals for eyes. The light of distant sun seemed to magnify a thousandfold as it reflected off the shifting atoms of its tenuous scales. It writhed in space like a cloud caught in the wind, but its writhing brought it closer to the kimono purposefully the twin eyes winked on and off like evil variable stars it scared the shit out of me i mean to tell you literally not much because i'd managed to gain control of my sphincter since the last run-in with the pleiades pirates but i wasn't quick enough and the dragon leapt for and swallowed that little morsel of exhaust emission licked its chops and waited for more You wouldn't think that a dragon could look like a hopeful puppy, especially with glowing coals for eyes, but... So help me fumble how that's what the dragon did. And when it didn't get any more, it opened its mouth and a long tongue of hard radiation belched forth, smelling of sulfur. I laughed as the plasma field that protected the kimono from gas clouds at relativistic speeds easily deflected the radiation. For a few microseconds, the umbilicus between Babe Ruth and El Nair was snapped, but it was quickly restored. Now, I was in a bit of a spot, but I wasn't too worried. In fact, the whole situation was kind of humorous. Here I was, deep in interstellar space, being trailed by a space dragon. Though trailed isn't quite the word, it had wrapped itself around the kimono like a snake around a tree. It quite obviously had every intention of hanging around, looking for more handouts. I couldn't go near any gravitational masses, or I'd be contributing to the demise of an endangered species, which was quite a serious crime at the time, but I had plenty of time to worry about that. Not that I could have killed it anyway. I had already come to like the little critter. I even gave it a name. St. George. Never mind, it would be too much trouble to explain. But when you pilot spaceships for a while, you stuff your brain with a lot of useless knowledge. Sometimes you get mental indigestion and they have to use a brain pump on you, but it's all there, somewhere in your personal magnetic core. No, not yours. Unless you put it there. Well, I'll be damned. Yes, St. George and the Dragon. I don't know why it'd be in your core but that's cute. Every now and then, old St. George would belch a little more radiation on me, disrupting the laser thread for a few microseconds. Thinking about the problem, I slipped off into a restless slumber, hypnotized by the flashing red light the computer kept sending me. My cargo this trip was Babe Ruth's championship baseball team on their way to El Nair for the District 3 semifinals of the third Millennial World Series. They were the defending champions, of course. They had won 746 straight games. Their last loss occurring when their center field, named Babe Ruth, of course, had stepped into a gopher hole. The whole team was named Babe Ruth. This always caused problems whenever they made substitution. Babe Ruth, pinch-hitting for Babe Ruth. It was suspected that sometimes they took out one of their stars and resubmitted him as a pinch-hitter later in the game, but how could you know? No, they were in cryogenic cabinets, too. Not as compact as mine, of course, but human beings rarely traveled awake in those days. When the space lanes were still wild, just explorers and pilots like myself, even between El Nair and Babe Ruth, there were still several unsavory patches, not fit to be seen by an athlete who must stay simon pure and in condition. Besides, it took several years to make the trip. That was back before the tachyon drive had been perfected, my dear. That lovely blinking red light the computer kept sending to me reminded me of those stalwart athletes I was transporting to El Nair. Why, you ask? Why indeed? I asked myself the same question. I had no answer. I asked the computer. Listen, dummy, it said to me. We've run into an area of high radiation, higher than the plasma field can cope with. Do something about it. It was one of those emergencies that required the help of a human mind. A drifting, half-asleep, human mind. The dragon. That's what it was. The dragon belching radiation at the kimono was overwhelming my plasma shield and endangering my athletes. And furthermore, it was endangering me. Under that sporadic bombardment, I was drifting off again, unable to control my consciousness. With that thought firmly in mind, I made a mental effort to pierce that haze and succeeded long enough to realize that the computer was right. My internal radiation was rising, slowly but steadily, toward dangerous levels. I was in trouble. You see, the kimono belonged to Odyssey Space Lines, Inc. And they had a contract with Babe Ruth that gave them exclusive transportation rights, and they capitalized on it in their advertisings: Travel on a Babe Ruth liner! Make your home run with a team that carries Babe Ruth. Strike out for the unknown on a Babe Ruth exploratory cruise. And those were the least offensive ones. If I didn't get the Babe Ruth baseball team to El Nair on time, they'd forfeit their galactic championship, and their value to Odyssey Space Lines, Inc. would be zero. And my value to Odyssey would be even less. Of course, that was rapidly becoming the least of my worries. Every time that St. George belched, radiation particles crept or sped through the kimono, depending on St. George's position. If he was at the head of the kimono, our relative speeds approached 2C, and those particles were gone faster than any computer could count. But if St. George was at my tail, why that radiation would creep through so slowly that several particles could gather together in a cell long enough to throw a stag party with films of bombarded nuclei and all. I was, as they say, in trouble and already drifting back to sleep. Wake up, you crumb! The computer shot at me, meanwhile adjusting my adrenaline level. I woke up. At first, I tried evasive maneuvers, but that only made things worse. With each maneuver, I'd use a little more fuel, and St. George would gulp up the exhaust and come back, hungrily looking for me. Hell, they couldn't have been more than appetizers for him. He was waiting for the main course. Get past St. George? Hell, I couldn't get half past the dragon. It appeared the only thing to do was wait him out, coasting as far as possible, in the hope that St. George would get hungry and go look elsewhere before he belched us up to the danger point. I racked my drifting mind for another solution, but it was harder and harder to concentrate. Old memories came drifting through my brain to say a brief hello, then go floating on out. I had to do something. I fought my way back through the haze, giving myself a beautiful migraine. The computer cheerfully informed me that the situation had changed. One of the suns along my course had chosen this time to go nova. As the old saying goes, it never rains, but it pours. What? No, of course it never rains in space. What I meant was... Oh, never mind. I was headed straight for those expanding gas clouds, full of Cherenkov radiation. What with my already weakened plasma shield, there was no thought of trying to plow on through. I would have to change course and skirt the Nova. That was not a particularly difficult maneuver, even in my now somewhat punch-drunk state, but it would tie St. George still more closely to my metaphorical bootstraps. Bemoaning my fate and racking my brain for some way to lose St. George, I queried the computer for the requisite course change. That's when I had my moment of genius. Could we skirt through one of those ionized shells without exposing Babe Ruth to too much radiation? The computer assured me we could, giving me a skimming tangent that barely touched the outer shell. When I fired the engines for the course change that was necessary, old St. George's eyes lit up like Beetlejuice itself at its brightest. Chomp, he went. Chomp, chomp gulping greedily behind me as I led him on. At least he wasn't belching while he ate. When we reached the outer shell of expanding gases, St. George ignored the novel gases and kept greedily gulping down my rich exhaust. As soon as I turned off the engines, however, to coast back out, he began munching all around him. Wolfing down oxygen, helium, nitrogen, and ammonium ions in gay abandon. I sometimes wonder what happened to old George. For all I know, he's still munching his way through that novel cloud. I hope he doesn't get heartburn. Yes, that's all there is to it. I'm sorry, you can't expect a climax with every story. I'll try to do better tomorrow night. But first... Come over to the window, my love. Look up there. Yes, a little to your right and up a bit. Now, if my cesium clock is accurate, in approximately 2.6 seconds you'll see... Ah, there it is. Right on time. Yes, flaring up nicely. The last time I saw that light, my love, was uncountable years ago. And now here it is, shining down on us on the night of my tale. If we could magnify it impossibly many times, perhaps we'd see the shadows of a spaceship and a dragon against those rapidly expanding gas clouds. The name of the star? I believe it's called Eta Draconis. Shall we go back to bed? Unplug me before you turn off the lights, will you, dear? Thank you.
2: And there you go. Wow. Thank you so much. Wow, man. Grant, that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And Summer, just take you away there. That voice just takes you away into the story. Both of you, thank you so much for for doing this for Starship Sova. Next up is... Next up is our very favourite month of the year, you know. Favourite month of the year. Amy H. Sturgis. Ames.
4: Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. I am so excited that it is the best month of the year. It's October, and I hope that you're having a great one. I am wrapping up some research and writing for a new publication project, and I'd like to share some of that with you today, if I may. You may remember back on episode 665 where I talked about the connection between Bennington College and the disappearance of one of its students, Paula Jean Weldon, and the works Hangs a Man by Shirley Jackson and The Secret History by Donna Tartt, both of which are sort of foundational works of dark academia. And I've been very interested in this recent explosion of new publications in the dark academia genre. And I've been reading a lot about how critics explain what dark academia is and why it is so popular right now, and how it's a blend of multiple genres, how you can have mundane novels, but also science fiction novels, fantasy novels, horror novels, all under that dark academia umbrella, and so I'm working right now on an intellectual history project for publication about dark academia, and one of the things that I've come up against is the lack of a useful, applicable definition that covers all the works that people consider to be the quote-unquote canon or new works of dark academia, and so I'd like to try that out on you today, and see what you think about it, and also connect that definition to science fiction. I should note here, quick caveat, I'm talking about dark academia literature. There is also a wildly popular aesthetic movement arising from TikTok, also known as dark academia, involving fashion and photography, home decor, and even paper dolls. And while they are related to a degree... The aesthetic movement is involved in a very different project than the literature, and I don't want to confuse the two. There does seem to be a pretty widespread consensus about what works are, at least recent works, are dark academia. There's just not an agreement about what the genre, or subgenre, however you want to define that, is. Some people say, well, it's an atmosphere, you, you feel it, if you get that sensation, that's what's happening, so, you know, yeah, you know it if you feel it, you know it if you see it. Some people try to have a kind of thumbnail sketch, things like, well, campus crime, for instance, or murder at school. Here is my attempt at systematizing a definition. See what you think. What makes a story part of the dark academia genre? It may be a mainstream work or a young adult work. It may be mundane fiction or science fiction or fantasy or horror or mystery or a combination thereof. I would say there are four ingredients to dark academia works. Number one, you guessed it, academia. The dark academia story connects in some vital way to the project of academia. Main characters are or were students or faculty members. The story may be set at or involve a non-residential school or a boarding school, a college or university campus, or a related space, such as a private library or laboratory An emphasis exists on research and learning. This might be the study of traditional or taboo academic subjects, the investigation of a campus or personal mystery, or simply the discovery of how to navigate the formal and informal, and often problematic, system of the institution or culture. Okay, so dark academia includes academia. Big shocker there. Number two, I would say that dark academia uses ingredients of the gothic for its focus on academia. We have talked in the past in this segment about the gothic quite a bit. In my graduate class on the history of the gothic imagination, I favor a definition of the gothic from Jared E. Hogel. He shares this in the Cambridge Companion to Gothic Fiction. And in that definition, he details four key ingredients of the Gothic. And I would say dark academia works generally display at least three, if not all four. Gothic stories are, number one, rooted in setting an antiquated space, such as, for example, a campus with its signature Architecture, atmosphere, and claustrophobia, the sense that everyone knows everything that's going on, right? Life in a fishbowl. Number two, absorbed with the past. This might be with the general past, like a subject of study, you study history, or with a recent personal past. Number three, associated with secrets that are either physically or psychologically haunting. And number four, involved with blurring the boundary between the natural and the supernatural, at least psychologically, but also physically or both. This last ingredient may not appear in all mundane works of dark academia, but it applies to many dark academia works of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. In short, the same genre-defying tendency that makes the gothic a parent genre of many others, including, I would add, science fiction itself, also makes dark academia a natural vehicle for cross-genre or multi-genre storytelling. So you can have a novel like, for example, Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas from 2020, a really great novel that is dark academia, it's science fiction, it's mystery. All of these things at the same time. Furthermore, because the Gothic formula relies on the hidden and the secret, many Gothic protagonists, from whom knowledge has been kept, are by nature outsiders, without the same privilege or power as others around them. And similarly, many dark academia protagonists are also outsiders. They're non-elites who do not belong to, and because of that, they observe all the more keenly the culture or system in which they find themselves. A third component, I would say, of dark academia is mood. Dark academia tales emphasize atmosphere. They involve tragedy an otherwise standard impulse, loyalty to a group of friends or a mentor, interest in specific subject of study, or dedication to independent projects, may become obsessive and spiral out of control. Dark academia stories highlight the theme of death in some way, like they depict morbid fascination with death, or controversial research aimed at thwarting death, the destruction of reputation, a kind of social death, or a school-related disappearance, murder, or suicide. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I would say dark academia works include embedded in them a critique. They interrogate power dynamics. They often shine a spotlight on exclusivity or privilege, inequality, hypocrisy. Campus-specific issues, such as faculty members abusing their power, or students bullying their classmates, or secret societies acting with impunity, or cliques going off and pursuing their own agendas, or institutions resting on morally dubious foundations. These all represent larger concerns about injustice in society, I would say. In other words, dark academia uses this intense and atmospheric pressure cooker of academia to address issues that, while often shown in high relief in that academic setting, are also universal issues. And so there you have it, folks. That's my definition of dark academia. It includes academia itself. It includes the Gothic imagination It includes a kind of mood, particularly related to tragedy and death, and it involves a critique of power structures. Now, if you think about that and squint backwards (laughs) in time, which is pretty much my (laughs) my default position, I think you'll see that this applies backwards to works of science fiction, not only from the 20th century, but from the 19th century as well. But I'm also really excited about this explosion of contemporary dark academia works in both mainstream and young adult uh, classifications, works from people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different races, different perspectives. We're even seeing dark academia in translation, works that were not originally published in English now being published in English very exciting. And I'll leave you with a recommendation for a recent work in this genre, one that ticks the boxes for mystery as well as most definitely science fiction. It's also just a really creepy novel, so it's a terrific read for the season. And it is called... Wilder Girls by Rory Power, first published in 2019. Yes, it was published before the COVID epidemic, but let me tell you, it is eerily relevant in a COVID world. Here is the official description. Quote, It's been 18 months since the Raxter School for Girls was put under quarantine, since the tox hit and pulled Hetty's life out from under her. It started slow. First, the teachers died, one by one. Then it began to infect the students, turning their bodies strange and foreign. Now cut off from the rest of the world and left to fend for themselves on their island home. The girls don't dare wander outside the school's fence, where the has made the woods wild and dangerous. They wait for the cure they were promised, as the talk seeps into everything. But when Byatt goes missing, Hetty will do anything to find her, even if it means breaking quarantine and braving the horrors that lie beyond the fence. And when she does, Hetty learns that there's more to their story, to their life at Raxter, than she could ever have thought true. Good stuff there. And if you happen to be interested in talking a bit more about dark academia, well, I would invite you to check out my social media. If you go to my website, amyhsturgis.com, there are links to my blog and my Twitter feed, for example, this month for October I am doing a daily post about dark academia in which I feature a different work of dark academia, one from the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. And I also share a little bit of a teaser, a spooky atmospheric season-appropriate quote from that book. So you'll see quite a bit of science fiction, as well as fantasy and horror there on that list. So I would invite you to come and join me and help celebrate the Halloween season. And I hope that you found this useful and of interest. And I appreciate the opportunity to share my work in progress with you. And I also look forward to joining you again soon for something completely different when we get together again soon to take another look back into genre history. Thank you.
2: Oh, Amy. Big October hug for you there. Thank you so much, lass. Oh, (laughs) I don't know how you like October. I hate bloody getting frightened. Oh, not, not, not. Not for me. So anyways, thank you, Amy. That is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
0: Signal getting through, turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best, I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through?